Alright, as you turn in your Bibles to Titus 2, we're in Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. And you'll, if you'll remember that we're in this series called Foundations, a Biblical Community. Foundations, a Biblical Community. Last week we saw what a healthy congregation would look like. What does a healthy congregation look like? And Paul gave us directions for each level of people, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, pastors and elders. And so as we, uh, we continue into Titus, we're going to start seeing the why, why we live in a healthy way. You know, the church has a mission to be this light in a dark world. And the time that, uh, that Paul writes, it's a pretty dark world that he's, he's already in. There are, Christians are persecuted very severely. And so he is, he's writing to a, a people who are in this dark world. And Paul continues his conversation from last week about how healthy teaching produces healthy living in the body of Christ. So let's read Titus 2, starting at verse 11, and we'll go through 15. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Instructing us to deny godliness, godlessness, and worldly lusts, and to live in sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, we are so grateful that we can come before your throne because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Lord, as we live between these two appearings, I pray that you would give us the, the, the energy and the desire to do your will. Father, be with us. Help me to hide behind your cross. May your word be proclaimed, and nothing from me, but all from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as this last verse, it, it tells us to proclaim these things. He's Paul is telling Titus, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. I'm hoping to proclaim these. And it's interesting that this word proclaim in verse 15 kind of closes out chapter 2 because at the beginning of chapter 2 he said and you are to proclaim these things so he's kind of putting bookends on this passage and so what we're going to learn today and the, and the main thrust of Paul is that the, you will be motivated to be holy on the basis of three truths the three truths are our place our instruction and our hope so our place our place is between two great lights. The mayor of Toronto had a problem. There was a severe amount of crime in Toronto, Canada. And so in an effort to curb some of this crime, he said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna have everybody leave their lights on. And they called it a uh, light the night campaign. And so what their goal was, was to turn on all the lights and leave them on overnight in an effort to curb crime. Well, it worked so well that many, many cities in America also followed suit. 
And what it did is it, it curved crime in the city. It pushed out the bad behavior that happens in the dark. So in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. This appearing is describing the coming of Jesus at his birth. And then if you look at verse 13, it says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is placing his readers between two great lights. Let's take a moment and think about the ancient Israelites. They left Egypt. They were free. That was one great light for them. And they were moving on to what? The promised land. So they were on this journey between two great lives, two great epiphanies. And Paul is reminding us to think in this way. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, puts it this way. He says, we are divided from the past by a wall of light upon whose forefront we read the words Bethlehem, Gethsemane, and Calvary. We date from the birth of the virgin's son. We begin with Anio Domini, which is A.D. All the rest of the time is before Christ and is marked off from the Christian era. Bethlehem's manger is our beginning. So we are on this side of the grace of God, the first appearing. We are able to look back and trust in the birth, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. The time before this was a time of dense darkness and confusion. You know, when Paul was writing, there was this thing called, um, there was gladiator fights. And gladiators would fight to the death for the, for the people's pleasure. So slaves and, and people who were of, of poor descent would fight to the death to please people. But not only that, there was this guy named Nero. And Nero had this nasty habit of throwing big parties and one of the things he would do is he had these big, vast gardens in Rome, and he wanted to light it up at nighttime. So what he would do is he would take the Christians who were his political opponents. He was threatened by the Christian people. He would take Christians, put them on these stakes, tar them, and then light them on fire to light his gardens and his garden parties. Darkness was brought the light by the blood of the martyrs bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. And we inherit that legacy. Those martyrs who lit up the night with their very lives. We have inherited that faith. That faith has come down to us through the blood of martyrs. But before we get too depressed, let's look at verse 11 again. It says we have a great hope. It says we are that the appearing of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, if you read all people here, you could automatically assume, oh yeah, everybody's getting saved. But that's not what the text really reads. The text is saying that the salvation is brought for all people, not that it will save all people. The gift of Jesus is sufficient for all people, but it's only efficient for those who believe. Some people like, get, like to get wrapped up and I want a book that has everybody's name who will be saved and I want all this information. But that misses the point. The point is not who will be saved, but that you can be saved 
through trusting on Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who are saved, we look forward to the second appearing. You know, that's our destination, the second appearing of Jesus. And as pilgrims, we're in a strange land, and we realize that this is not our home. We have a future home, a promised land that we're going to. So the church of Jesus Christ, all the people of faith in Jesus throughout time, starting at the light of his birth and the second coming, are looking forward to the day he will return. Let's look at verse 13 with me. It says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the people of God. The second coming. This is what Paul lived his life for. Paul, and like Paul, we believe that our master who was taken away in the clouds before the eyes of the disciples will return in like manner. Turn over to Acts 1, 10 through 11. Keep your finger in Titus because we will be here. But in Acts 1, verses 10 through 11, we get this wonderful promise. Acts 1, 10. It says, While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have seen him going. As an end to this current age, we look forward to the glorification of Jesus. Behind we see Christ's humiliation on the cross, and before us the great God and Savior in his full glory. Hallelujah. At the end of verse 12, we get the present age. It says, instructing us to deny godlessness, worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous way in the present age. So it does no good for us only to look back or only look to the future for our hope because we have this present age that we contend with. This is the second aspect of our place as believers. We move from one light, one appearing, to the next. We're taking this journey with all the believers past, present, and future. Paul calls, a, calls it the present age. And when you think of present age, it sounds really, really fleeting, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like it's a long time, a present age. You know, one hobby that I really used to enjoy was duck hunting. And as I would hunt ducks, I would know that they're migrating from the north going to the south. And one of the things I knew is as they're coming through, they're going to want a place to land and eat. And so I would sit up on these ponds where I knew ducks would like to come. I would place out some decoys. I would have my call. And I would try to bring these ducks down low enough so I could shoot them. Right? And so I knew what they wanted. And so these ducks, I would try to have them be as realistic as possible. But, you know, we are like ducks migrating in this life. And the problem is, you have Satan, who has placed decoys in our lives to try to attract us so that he can stop us. He can keep us from doing what is valuable and important. And so, we all have different types of decoys in our lives, different things that we, are, we have a tendency towards. But the problem is, they're all connected in a similar way. They have this connection to our heart's desires. 
So when I was hunting, I provided ducks, or I provided these decoys that I knew what are what these ducks wanted. These ducks wanted to eat. So I had I had duck decoys that were digging in the water looking for food. I had a call that sounded like duck sound eating. And I had as realistic as possible decoys that I could find, and I would place them out in a realistic way. And Satan knows the desires of the human heart, and he capitalizes on it. Just like I would capitalize on Doug's tendencies, Satan does the same thing in our own lives. And so he gives us these distractions. He knows that we desire. You know, he, he, um, he knows that we desire them or lust after them, as, one of the, as some of the manuscripts will say, worldly lusts instead of desires. And, you know, as we pilgrims pass through this wild country of life, you know, as, as pilgrims or exiles in Babylon, we know that we're moving along and that these decoys are going to come and try to stop us, these counterfeits. And they seek to only, not only to draw us down and to immobilize us, but they want to make us ineffective for the kingdom. So what are the counterfeits in your life? What are the decoys in your life? What is keeping you from being effective to the kingdom of God? You know, Paul makes the argument that a holy life is one that denies the decoys of this world. We are to walk as children of the light, which brings us to our second point, which is the training or our education, our instruction. So in verse 12, it starts out with that his grace has appeared and is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Paul is describing this education. It's, it kind of sounds like a schoolhouse type of bringing up, a rearing, a training up, um, a teaching a child to do the right thing. And the grace of God has come as a parent to teach us how to live, to train us, to educate us. So when you think about the Israelites in the wilderness, what were they doing? They were traveling from Egypt to the promised land, to Israel. Israel, uh, to Israel. But if they took a straight, a straight way, it wouldn't have taken them a long time. So why did they spend so much time in the wilderness? Well, it's because God was training them to trust in him. He was breaking them into formations. Did you notice that he broke them into tribes and he had to march in different ways and they had to go and get trained through the hardness of being in the wilderness to prepare for the fighting in the promised land. He's building that trust. And so the first level is that the grace of God educates us to deny two things. It, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly pleasures. You see that in verse 11, I mean verse 12. We deny ungodliness and worldly pleasures. So God's grace is the teacher, we are the students. So while the law showed us the do's and don'ts, God's grace teaches us the wants and won'ts. So while the law shows us what ungodliness looks like, it binds us to a religion or to a religious do this, don't do that. Which is our natural selves, we rebel against that. We rebel against the do's and don'ts. But the law doesn't lose its, it lose its usefulness because we can't keep it. It's contained as a, or it's retained for us as a standard, you know, especially the Ten Commandments. And what we're able to do is we can use it as a testing principle to see what is not straight in our lives. So we place our lives adjacent to the straight ruler of the law, 
and we can identify where we're crooked, where we're wrong. We place it next to the standard of God's word. So how do you know what is ungodly or worldly? Well, we have the law. We have the law that was given to the Israelites. We can understand that. But the law cannot change us. It does not change us. Because the law produces a list of do's and don'ts. But God's grace, who is Jesus, has come and he gives us the wants and the won'ts. Because of Jesus, we want to live self-controlled lives. Because of Jesus, we won't indulge in worldly lusts. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, it is training us. So here's this quote. Have you heard this quote by Frederick Douglass? It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Many teachers will tell you that it's not so much the putting in of new information that's difficult with the student, but it's taking out the wrong or the bad information or the bad habits that that student has developed. And in like manner, when the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, we have so much that we have to unlearn. We have learned to be puffed up and conceited. We have been taught so much by the wisdom of this world, things that seem great but really isn't, isn't wise. We have to take off this old self and put on this new. So the first step is to deny ungodliness, as it says here in verse 12, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldliness. We have to refuse some temporary pleasures. We must avoid some of those decoys that Satan places in our lives. You know, at times that means turning off the TV, reading your Bible. Instead of watching that extra show on TV, you put it away and pray. You know, uh, one of the things I used to do is I used to work with a lot of students. And students would tell me, I just don't have time to read my Bible and pray. I just don't have time for that. And I would say, okay, I can understand that. Life is busy, right? Do me a favor. Just mark down every time you get on social media. Every time you look on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that you're using, just mark it down. I said, also, take note of how many Netflix shows you watch at night. And what I would find is that they don't have time for godliness because they fill the majority of their time with these decoys, these distractors. Satan has baited this hook and is that's, that looks attractive because it's a bait, but underneath the bait is a hook. And he's capturing people with these distractions, these decoys. What does Satan bait you with? Remember, there is a God and we are accountable to him. We neglect the promptings and conviction of the Holy Spirit at our own risk. A goal in life is to make ourselves ready for the next. As Israelites, we have to be prepared for the next, the promised land, the next step. As Christians, we have to be prepared for glory. So we recognize our place before God, and in time, we become educated by the life and sacrifice of Jesus. We put off this old self, we remove the selfish nature of our actions and thoughts, and we remove this old pattern of living. How many of you guys have heard the saying, nature abhors a vacuum? This plays out in my house very often. I have these things called flat spaces, like tables and desks. And, and guess what happens? 
things start piling up on it, right? Because it's a vacuum. There's nothing there. I put stuff on it. Well, if I want to clean my house, I remove all of that stuff and I put it somewhere else. But maybe two or three days later, all this stuff is back on the same flat surface, right? It's because I've removed it, but I haven't placed anything there to prevent me from putting more stuff back on it. And this is kind of like how our life is. You know, we, we haven't, we've removed our bad habits, but we don't place any new habits in their stead. And so you look at it, we, we haven't prevented anything. So we leave, we have a positive, so we just talked about the negative, removing, but now we're gonna talk about the positive aspect of the training. You know, we can't be complete with merely negatives. We must see the positive. So we must put on something. So, verse 12, it says, in the second part of verse 12, it says, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So our great educator, the great God, the grace of God, teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Because we are living in this present age, waiting for our hope, we must live in the way we are told. And this ties in with Paul's earlier talk in the passage about how to live a godly way, how healthy teaching produces godly living. We cannot just live, live in our own little holy huddles. You know, some people would really like to go and live in a monastery and just get away from the world and just be holy on our own. But that's not our mission. That's not our calling. That's not what God has brought us here to do. It's no use for us to hide away because we were born for a purpose in this present time, this present age. And we want to reach the world with the good news of Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is through the witness of our lives. A healthy church reflects healthy teaching in everyday lives. You, as a member of the body of Christ, are to put off your old self and put on your new. You must be self-restrained, not giving to excess. Be self-controlled. You cannot be all gas and no break. Unless you're pursuing Christ. So put on righteous living, which means not being deceitful in your everyday dealings. You know, it's not befitting of a servant of God to be deceitful in your life. A God's servant must not lack integrity. So finally, we must be godly. We must seek first the kingdom of God, not our own. So God's word must be the guide of our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. And this can seem, can seem pretty overwhelming. I want to remind you that not only did Jesus die for our sins in order to redeem us, but he also is cleansing us to make us holy. Let's turn to verse 14. It says he gave himself for us to redeem us or to save us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession. Who are jealous for good works. Let that sink in for a minute. Like just, just think about that. I've been dwelling on this, this truth all week. So not only does he save me, but he's cleansing me of unrighteousness. That's amazing. And this is a hope that we have. So we turn to our third point, which is our hope. So because of our position between these two great lights. We are being trained in life to live godly lives. And the encouragement for us, the great hope for us, is that there's two things. It is that he has 
redeeming and purifying to make a people for his own possession. Look at, look at verse 14. The reason he's doing that is to make himself a people for his own possession. You might be in the season of depression right now. You might be angry, frustrated, um, having a lot of anxiety. You might be overwhelmed by the way the world is going. You may turn on the news and just get sick to your stomach or have a, have a knot in your stomach. Because of the wars and the rumors of wars. Our first encouragement is that Jesus is putting together a people, a treasured possession. The word that he is used here for his own possession is more like a box of diamonds that he is seeking to pursue. It's a treasured, a valuable, and important possession. And if you read in Exodus, it said the same thing about the Israelites. He is putting together a treasured possession. And so this, this word that emphasizes such value, is so valuable that he would, God would send his own son to redeem and to cleanse that people. Because he's, he wants a people that are passionate about good works. They earnestly desire to do good works. Let's turn to verse 7 for a second in that same chapter. And what you see is Paul telling Titus the same thing in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. What is this good works that he's talking about? Well, we just read it last week in 1 through 10. And these good works are something pretty amazing. We didn't really spend a lot of time getting into it, but the good works that he's talking about, you can be poor, you can be rich, you can be a model of good works regardless of your life circumstances. You don't have to be smart, you don't have to be, um, you don't have to be smart to be self-controlled, you don't have to be smart to be pure, to be kind, to not be addicted to much wine. You can be a model of good works right where you are. You can be that example. This is attainable for everyone. So how do we become models of good works? Well, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's only and totally because of Jesus Christ. We struggle in this life seeking to put to death the sins of our lives, bringing conviction of sin. The Spirit brings conviction of sin to help us become holy, to be sanctified. We are his people. So what great lengths God went through for his people in the wilderness. Think about the Israelites in the wilderness. They were continually messing up. It reminds me of my life. I am continually making mistakes before a holy God. But God continually provided them a way out. Just like he's done for us. So if you're living in sin right now, there is a way out. There's a way from that bondage and imprisonment of sin for you. So not only are we a treasured possession, but we are living in this anticipation. So what are you currently living in anticipation of? Is it when I retire, then I'll be able to go do whatever I want? Or when my kids get out of the house, then I'll be free to, to, to live happy and do whatever I want? Or maybe it's like, when I find that right woman or that right man, they're going to make me, they're going to make my life happy. I'm going to be good. That's what I'm living in anticipation of. Or is it that next promotion? If I only had a little bit more money to spend, or I little, had a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. We live in anticipation of things all the time. But why do we live our lives in the future? Well, we hope for a future in which things are different. 
That's what we're hoping for. So Paul is reminding Titus that we, that our hope must be in our Savior, that we are waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This is not a stagnant hope. You know, this is not like a waiting room where we're waiting to be seen. No, this is a call to preparation, a call to prepare for this promised land. Paul describes the coming of Jesus and Timothy in this way. I'm just going to read it for you. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now pay attention to this. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, his epiphany. Even as Paul was preparing for death, he finished the race strong. He was not slowing down in his service. We are to anticipate the coming and live in light of that truth. In conclusion, Christ has a plan for the church, the people of God. The people of God are to be, a whole, are to be holy because God is holy, and we are to be a light in the darkness. The church can only be as holy as its own congregation. In this text, you saw that we must seek to be holy on the basis of three truths. Our place, our instruction, and our hope. Christian believers throughout time have held on to these three truths. We live between two great lives. The first coming of Jesus and the future coming of Christ. We are to be holy, and God's grace is our teacher. And finally, we have hope because we know our position in time and place. And we have such a great anticipation for the future in Jesus Christ. Today, we live in a pretty dark world. We live in a world where mothers will kill their preborn children. We live in a world where drugs and alcohol destroy families. We live in a world where morality is kind of vague. We live however we want. The Middle Ages were commonly called the Dark Ages. They were called the Dark Ages because of the perceived decline in the culture of Western Europe. It was also a very spiritually dark time for Christianity. It had been corrupted or co-opted and taken over by governments, and it was also co-opted by crooked leaders. And the Bible became a tool to try to keep people in line. The Bible was restricted from common languages. And most people couldn't understand it unless they were schooled in Latin. So during this darkness, there was a light. A light was shown forth, a light in the darkness. And this was the Protestant Reformation. You know, it started in obscurity and slowly got brighter and brighter. The Bible was eventually translated into languages of German and English. They were becoming available to all the people. The governments and the leaders of the time attempted to stop it. This rebellion, this reformation, by burning Bibles, by burning the people who made those Bibles, they attempted to shut this, rep this reformation down. They put the people to death. They condemned the Protestants and severely persecuted them. Well, a Latin saying came out of this. A Latin saying came out of this. And that Latin saying was this. It was, post tenebris lux, out of darkness, light. It became stamped on coins. In Protestant cities, it became their battle cry. Jesus Christ gave himself 
for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Will you be that light in the darkness? Will you be the post-tenebrous lux in Sierra Vista, in your community, to your neighbors in Arizona or to the world? Let's that, let that be our battle cry. Let us bring the light of God's word into this broken world. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that we are insufficient for these things. We know that your glorious truths are so powerful that they change hearts and they change minds and they change actions. Father God, we've seen it throughout history over and over again. We've seen how you have transformed the lives of, of so much darkness in the world. And Father, we pray for a, a, an awakening in our church, in our hearts, in our community, and in, in, in our country. Father, we know that we live in a time of of dangerous and scary things. And Father, we pray that you will continue to remind us that we live between two great appearings. Father, we are reminded that your son is teaching us to become more and more like you. And for that, we are so grateful. Father God, we have a hope. We have that anticipation of the coming of Christ, the return of Jesus who will make all things new, who will make all things right. So Father God, it's my heart cry that you would use me to be a light in the darkness. I pray that you would use this church as a light in the darkness. Father God, we love you, and we care for you, and we desire to be more like you. In the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, we pray all these things. Amen. <laughs>